1 Timothy chapter 1 tonight. Who is the vilest sinner that you know? Maybe we could start a list. Last week, a lady in our neighborhood was caught on camera stealing Amazon packages from people's doorsteps in broad daylight. Neighbors said that she had been doing this for years, but they finally caught her on video, and Madison Heights police figured out who she was and found out that she had a criminal record. Her name is Lori Fillerie, and she's 40 years old. She's a pretty vile sinner with multiple counts of larceny and now um, uh, has a warrant out for her arrest. What about the Green River Killer? Maybe there's a more vile sinner than she. Gary Ridgway is a serial killer who dumped a number of his victims in the Green River in the state of Washington in the 1980s. After he was caught, he was charged with 48 counts of first-degree murder. He confessed to all of them and an additional 23 that could not be substantiated with evidence. But he was convicted of the 48 and sentenced to 48 life sentences for the murders of these women and young girls plus an additional 10 years per victim for tampering with evidence with no possibility of parole. I mean, who could be evil enough to do these kinds of things, steal packages in broad daylight or kill people who are made in the image of God? And the answer is a vile sinner, someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins, someone who is an enemy of God. Someone who takes pleasure in the lusts of their flesh with a complete disregard for the God of their universe. And the question is, is can God's grace overcome their vile sins? I mean, if Lori or Gary were willing to repent of their sins, as vile as their sin is, as terrible as their evil is, if they trusted in Christ as the means of their salvation, could they be saved? Is God powerful enough to provide atonement for sinners as wicked as they? In verses 12 through 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul breaks into thanksgiving and praise because of his mercy in saving Paul. And there are two reasons that Paul does this. First, Paul had just mentioned the glorious gospel in verse 11, so now he wants to expound on that glorious gospel and how it applied to him. And then the second reason that he does this is because chapter 1 is all about seeking victory over these false teachers. And Paul wants Timothy to know that if there's going to be any victory over these false teachers, then it's going to have to come by the grace of God. Just like the grace of, grace of God came on Paul, as he calls himself the vilest of sinners. Let's look at the text together, beginning in verse 12. This is the Word of God. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, 
so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I think Paul wants Timothy to see, and I think us by extension, Holy Spirit wants us to see that God's mercy to vile sinners proves that He can save anyone who believes. If God's mercy could overcome the vilest sin of the Apostle Paul or Saul at the time, then can He not save any one of us? God's mercy to vile sinners proves that He can save anyone who believes. Paul begins with thanksgiving in verses 12 through 14. God's mercy and salvation results in our thanksgiving. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. He thanks God. He thanks Christ for two things. That God has placed him into service despite his vile opposition. And then God has forgiven him and welcomed him into his family. First, Christ, God has placed him into his service despite his vile opposition. In verse 11, he mentioned the glorious gospel, as I said earlier. Now he wants to expound on, on that and see what it did for him. Timothy, you need to understand what this, this grace, this gospel has done for me. That Christ has called me into service. Notice the language there. He has strengthened me, verse 12, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. It's not that Paul earned God's trust or that he earned God's favor. It's not that Paul had to first show himself himself faithful first and then God would accept accept him. No, notice the text says that he strengthened me. We're going to see in verses 13 and 14 that it was all of grace. It was all of mercy. That is unmerited, unearned favor. And Paul is marveling at the fact that God would even consider him, especially who he was, right? The, the vilest of enemies against God and his work. Paul is also thankful that Christ has placed him into service in verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, I should say, at the end of verse 12, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. So he has strengthened me and he's put me into service. What kind of service is Paul talking about? It's not clear exactly what he's talking about, but it's probably not his service as an apostle. More likely it's his service in general as a Christian, something that we can thank God for as well. What a great privilege. There's a story of Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was later on in years, and he was he's a famous preacher from the 19th century in England, and after he stepped down from the ministry because of age and starting to slow down, people said, how is this for you? Uh, how are you handling all this? I mean, you used to have so many people that were under you and that were under your care, and and he quoted to them, quoted to this person, Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. His response is simply, the thing that I take the most pleasure in is not how many people I have working for me, not how much influence I can, can, uh, can use. It's about whether or not I'm a member of God's family. This is what I rejoice in. Too often we get uh, we get into grumbling over our position, where we are, what what's most important, and and we don't 
reflect on what great privilege we have simply to be in God's family. If the president invited you to the inaugural dinner, would you be complaining that you weren't sitting at the head table? No, you'd be thankful that you could be even there at such an honorable occasion. This is what Paul is marveling in. Not that he's got some special place in God's kingdom, but but the fact that God would even put him into service, welcome him to the banquet. And this mercy of God serves as a stark contrast to the dark background of Saul's sins. Paul lists three sins that described him prior to his conversion. In verse 13, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. So would you turn with me to Acts 26? I'll show you this first one. Acts 26, verse 9. Listen to Saul, Paul. Paul, after he's converted, he's recounting what he was like before he came to Christ. So when he was Saul, he's recounting what he was like and kind of some of the mindset, the motives that were in his head as he's working through um, trying to persecute the church. Acts 26, verse 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up, up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. And even in the account of of this, these three verses, we, we just think of several stories. We think of the stoning of Stephen, that he put cast his lot against him, cast his, cast his vote against him, about chasing believers all the way up as far as Damascus. We'll see that here uh, in the next sin that he's going to talk about. But, but blasphemy, blasphemy is misrepresenting the name of God. And, and for Paul, he had been told that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and he's going around telling people that Jesus is not the promised Messiah. And that anyone who believes in Him has actually denied the faith. They have turned away from the true and living God. He thinks that's the truth. And that way he's misrepresenting God, isn't he? He's blaspheming. And he's trying to get believers to do the same. That's what he says there in verse 11. And so as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. See, when he's looking back on it, he realizes that what he was doing was blasphemy and that he was trying to get them to do the same. Turn back to 1 Timothy because we see a second sin that he lists. That Again, this kind of sets the dark backdrop against which the the glory of the gospel shines. And and the first one is that that he's a blasphemer. The second one, verse 13, is that he's a persecutor. And we already saw this in verse 11 of Acts 26, but basically he's willing to travel 150 miles north from Jerusalem all the way up to Damascus in order to make sure that Christians are persecuted. He wants them to feel the pain, the, the weight of their opposition against the chief priests. So he took pleasure in taking these long trips in order to persecute believers, short trips, whatever was necessary. The third sin that he lists is that he was a violent aggressor. He was not satisfied with persecuting the Christians right there in Jerusalem and allowing them to scatter. That's in fact what happened. But he also was was willing to hunt them down. Anybody who names the name of Christ is going to be killed by me. I'm going to do my best. The power of Rome to to destroy them. The power of of the Jews, the the 
uh, of Jerusalem. He was a Christian predator, as one commentator puts it. So despite his fierce opposition against Christ, Christ brought him into his service. This, this is what we ought to consider when we think about our own salvation. Who were we before we came to Christ? How vile was our opposition before God saved us? And, and as we see the Gospel in the light of that kind of backdrop, it highlights the beauty of it like a diamond on a dark cloth. The second thing that Paul is thankful for is that God has forgiven him and welcomed him into his family. And I think we ought to do the same, that God has forgiven us. Thank God that God has forgiven us and welcomed us into his family. At the end of verse 13, he says, Yet I was shown mercy. So despite my fierce opposition, my vile rage against Jesus and His work, yet I was shown mercy. In what way? Well, the Christ would even save someone like Him. A sinner of the worst kind. A sinner who was an enemy. And why was that? What was, what was, um, what was Jesus' reasoning in doing that? Well, the end of verse 13 says that Paul acted ignorantly in unbelief. What was he saying there? Is he saying that he was an innocent sinner? And I would say to you that there is no such thing as an innocent sinner. I think instead he's talking about the fact that he was innocent about the truth of the gospel. So what he's saying is that, Timothy, these false teachers in your church, they have tasted of the truth of the gospel. They have claimed it for themselves. They have said that it is true and that they embrace it. And now they're turning people, they've turned away and they're turning other people away. And, and for me, I was on the other side of that. I hadn't fully embraced it. I actually was rejecting it. And in that way, it was ignorance. The false teachers had the clear message of the gospel. Despite their knowledge, they are blaspheming and persecuting. Notice the source of Paul's faith. And love, in verse 14, it's God's grace. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So the faith and love that spring out from the salvation that God has created comes from His grace, His unmerited, unwanted, unearned favor. And the immediate, the immediate response by Paul it should be the same response that we have when we think of the gospel. It's something that we should have been thinking about as we were singing about the gospel just now. And that is one of thanksgiving. Look again at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy, I want you to know that I thank Christ for what He's done for me. So first, God's mercy and salvation results in our thanksgiving. Secondly, Christ's coming to the earth secures salvation for repentant sinners. We could say the incarnation secures salvation for repentant sinners. More than the incarnation, really. The fact that He came and He died. We'll see this in verse 15. Paul wants to remind Timothy in the Ephesian church of a faithful saying. Notice how he begins the verse. It is a trustworthy statement. A trustworthy statement is a well-known saying in the churches. Something that's consistent with apostolic teaching. And Paul uses this introductory phrase several times. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the offer, office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So if someone desires to be a pastor, that's a good thing. Chapter 4, verse 9. It is a trustworthy statement deserving, deserving full acceptance. 
And, and there he's talking about in the context godliness that is profitable in all things. And then 2 Timothy 2.11, he uses the same phrase to talk about that if we died with Christ, we also will live with Him. It's something that's just common knowledge among Christians. That's kind of the, the idea of this phrase. It's, it's maybe even something that they would recite in their church. Christ Jesus here in chapter 1, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of... And then he adds this other part, of whom I am the foremost. But, but everyone would know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a trustworthy statement. It's consistent with the apostolic teaching. And Paul probably gets this statement, or, or I should say the church probably gets this statement that they would often recite from what Jesus said that he came to do. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Luke 19, verse 10. So Paul takes this trustworthy, common statement among Christians and he appends it, doesn't he? He adds something to it at the end of verse 15. He says, among whom I am foremost of all. Literally, among whom I am first of all. Which, when he's saying first there, he doesn't mean first in time. He's not the very first sinner that ever came, that ever lived on the earth. And that's why I think the New American Standard is a good translation and some of the others have the same similar idea. That foremost, I think that's a good idea. It's the idea of first in quality. That if, or we could say lack of quality, right? The, the worst of sinners. When it comes to vileness, I'm first place. That's me. And notice the tense of the verb that he uses. He doesn't say, among whom I was foremost of all. He says, I am. And so it seems like not that after he's been saved, he's still this vile sinner that that uh, that hates God and is constantly persecuting Christians and the violent aggressor. He's not saying that. Instead, what he's likely saying is that when I consider my whole life, both unbelieving and believing life, I am the foremost of sinners. No one can top my vileness. Again, his his vileness highlights the glory of the gospel. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that He can save a vile sinner like the woman at the well. Jesus can save a vile sinner like Mary the prostitute. Or He can save a vile sinner like the murderous, blaspheming, violent, Christian-persecuting, self-righteous Pharisee, Saul. Christ can save the vilest of sinners. So how does all this relate to what Paul has been warning Timothy about? And the answer is in verse 16. Look there with me. We see that God's mercy to vile sinners proves that He can save anyone who believes. God's mercy to vile sinners proves that He can save anyone who believes. Verse 16, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. So Paul here is showing us a pattern. That when his sin was exposed, God covered it with His mercy. Paul lists his three main sins. Remember, the the blasphemer, the persecutor, the violent aggressor, and he says, Yet I was shown mercy. Verse 14. And then he says, I'm the foremost of sinners. And then he follows that with, yet I, was fo- I have found mercy. Similar idea. So sin, I have found mercy. And now he gives the reason why. why. Why would God ever do this, Paul? Why would God ever show mercy to someone like you? In 
the answer there in verse 16 is that so that Christ would demonstrate His perfect patience. Somehow in the great wisdom of God, He reveals and shows some of His greatness, His glory, in being patient with sinners like you and me. That He doesn't immediately judge us like our sins deserve. Instead, He is long-suffering. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. Listen to Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if He did so in order to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory? So even though God was willing to show His wrath and and, and make His power known, and he's, He has done that against sin. And what if He were willing to, to spare a few and highlight them as trophies of His grace? Say, they deserve My wrath. They deserve utter condemnation, but I'm going to draw them out by the power of the Gospel. Not by any works which they have done. And I'm going to set them up as trophies for the world to see, the demons and the angels and all creation. See, how, how great of patience, how great patience I have. How much great patience I have. What great glory it is. It will come to God's name when He highlights the mercy that He's shown in us when we deserve His full and final wrath. Listen to Ephesians 3, verses 8-10. to 10, We get some more idea of why God shows mercy to sinners like us. There, Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages to come has been hidden, or which for ages in the past has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Somehow, God shows His wisdom in showing mercy to sinners who deserve His wrath. Somehow God takes those who are enemies and makes them into His friends. And it highlights His wisdom and His love. Patience. So yes, your salvation has immediate benefits for you. Praise God for that. Your salvation has long-term eternal benefits for you individually. But your salvation is not just about you. There's a higher purpose in your salvation. And it is that God would receive great honor. It shows to a watching world the great patience of our Savior that though we have spurned Him, though we have rebelled against His will, and though God has every right to destroy us without a thought, He bears with us. And He gives us time to repent. Even a violent oppressor like Saul. Notice the last part of verse 16. As an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. So here I think Paul's saying more than just God receives glory. But he's saying in saving me a vile sinner, the foremost of sinners. In fact, the word that he uses um, uh, there in verse middle of verse 16, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example. So, as the foremost, in the, in the, the sense that God saves me, the vilest of sinners, 
then it serves as an example to anyone else who will believe. That if God can save me as vile as I was, as vile as I am, then He can save anybody. If God can show mercy to a Gary Ridgway kind of sinner like Saul, then what does it say about God's ability to be able to show mercy to someone like you or me? In other words, Paul is living proof that anyone can be saved. And so the question at hand is, in the context of chapter 1, what about the false teachers? What can God do with them? Because that's what Paul wants to see. Paul doesn't want to see them destroyed. He doesn't want to see them uh, removed from um, God's favor. He wants them to, to be shown God's mercy. What about them? Can God's mercy overpower a false teacher? And the answer is, if, if God could save the vilest of sinners, Paul, then God can show mercy to the false teachers as well. And in the end, God will receive all the praise. And that's what verse 17 is about. Reflection on God's mercy demands our highest praise. As Paul just thinks about the Gospel, and as you're thinking about the Gospel, I hope your heart is welling up with thanksgiving and praise to God because of His mercy to you. That's exactly what Paul does. As he starts to just put these words down on the paper, he moves into a doxology of praise to God. He's thinking about the eminence of God, that God would be willing to stoop down and save a sinner by sending Christ to the world to die for sins. And now in verse 17, he kind of draws the picture back of who God is. Yes, God is near and He's close and He cares about us. But here in verse 17, he actually steps back and talks about God's transcendence. That the One who is eternal and invisible and far above all rule and authority is the One who saved me. Why the change? Why talk about God's imminence, that God is close, He's near, He cares about our individual needs, and then move back to talk about the eternal God? Why not talk about God as Savior? Paul seems to be making a point with this contrast, that, and that is that the eternal, transcendent God of eternity, the One who made all things, is kind enough to have consideration for a violent enemy of His like Paul so that Paul could be welcomed into God's family and used in God's service. And this was a great reason to praise the God of eternity. And so he says in verse 17, Now to the King eternal. Not to the temporal King. Not to the dying King. The local King. But the universal, time-transcending, impenetrable God. The King of all the universe. This is the One to whom I praise. He is immortal, that is unchanging, undying, unable to be defeated. He is enthroned as king already. And he is invisible, Paul says there in verse 17. Even though we can't see him, we get glimpses of his glory. And one day we will see him face to face. He is the one and only God. And so to him belongs honor and glory forever. Never. Amen. Let me finish by giving you a few uh, 
points of application, three of them. Number one, recognize the ultimate purpose of your salvation. Recognize the ultimate purpose of salvation. It's true. A purpose in salvation is to rescue you from destruction, to rescue you from the wrath of God. That is a purpose, but is not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of your salvation is to magnify the glory of God so that in your salvation, God can demonstrate His great patience in bearing with you, not bringing you to condemnation when your sins deserved it. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7 say that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Somehow God is going to show His great grace where we are going to fall on Him. We just talked about the old rugged cross. We're going to, we're going to take our crowns and exchange them. Or we're going to take the cross and exchange them for crowns and all these crowns are going to be laid at Christ's feet. We don't deserve them. We didn't earn them. It was all of God's grace. So recognize the ultimate purpose in salvation. And then maybe an implication from this is that we ought to share the news of God's mercy if God is merciful enough to save sinners. Don't you think He has some more sinners in mind that He'd love to save? Don't you think that He'd love to use you in His purposes to bring about salvation in the life of someone else? Dr. Philip Towner in his commentary writes, Our own experiences of conversion and calling contain promises for those around us who do not yet know Christ's mercy. Yet they will come to know Him if and only if the Gospel is communicated meaningfully to them. If we resist our tendencies to become absorbed in, what, in, absorbed in what we already have instead of reaching out with others when, uh, uh, what others need to have. In other words, sometimes we take pleasure in our salvation and then make that the end. As if that's the final thing. And yet God can receive great glory from us spreading His fame to more and more people around us so that they enjoy... And, and experience the mercies of God. I love this statement. He says, they, the unbelieving people around us, will come to know God only if the Gospel is communicated meaningfully to them. No one can call on the name of the Lord without having heard the Gospel. How can they call on Him in whom they have not heard? We have to tell them. And, and if, if God has done this work when, within us, it should create a desire for us to see God do this work in someone else. So, so share the news of God's mercy. And I think the primary point of application is drawn from the, the main theme of the text, and that is that we should reflect on God's grace in saving a vile sinner like you and me. Reflect on God's grace in saving a vile sinner like you and me and give thanks. It's true, Paul was unworthy of salvation. But before you climb up too high on your own pedestal, none of us are worthy of being saved, are we? None of us are worthy of being saved. The Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, will turn 68 next month. Think with me, what would it take for a vile sinner like Gary to be saved? 
one word, it would take grace, wouldn't it? He needs a work of regeneration. Can God do that? Is God's hand too short to save a serial murderer? Is anything impossible with God? Is the blood of Christ insufficient to save the vilest of sinners? Now maybe Gary is not the vilest sinner, but Paul actually claims to be. And we know that God actually saved him. So what does that say about anyone else who desires to be saved? We can think of vile sinners and say what terrible people they are and how deserving they are of hell. But the fact is is that while the record of our debts may not match the record of Lori or Gary or murderous Saul, we all have a record of, of conflict, of sin that we have committed against the holy, immortal, uh, undying God. We all have a record of debts. And in order for any person to come to Christ, no matter what they have done, they all need the same thing. We all need the same thing. We need what Paul needed. We need what Gary and Lori need. We need grace. And the truth is that even at the age of six years old, even though you didn't have a criminal record, you were an enemy of God. And to use the language of Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so let me ask you a question. Which is harder for God to do? To resurrect a physical body that has been dead for a few days, like Lazarus? Or to resurrect a physical body that's been dead for decades, like the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37? Which one's harder for God to do? The fact is, God has to do a miracle in both cases, doesn't He? And what about spiritually? Which is harder for God to do? Is it harder for God to breathe spiritual life into a spiritually dead child who's six years old? Or is it harder for God to breathe life into a 68-year-old serial murderer like Gary Ridgway? And if God could save someone as vile a sinner He has the power to do that. So as vile a sinner as Gary or Paul, what does that say about God's power to save us? See, God's power is not limited. His hand is not too short. There's nothing impossible with God. It seems amazing to us that God would save Paul and offer salvation to Gary, such an evil man, but we too were once enemies of God. We too were spiritually dead. Let me just drive this home with a couple passages. Romans 8, verse 6. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. A sinful man is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. That was us. And then the great passage in Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath 
even as the rest. And yet, we found mercy. Despite our sin, despite our deserving condemnation, God set that aside, put that condemnation on the shoulders of Jesus. And He said, in exchange for that, I'm going to give you mercy who don't deserve mercy. I'm going to give Him death and condemnation, even though He doesn't deserve it. So friends, reflect on the mercy of God tonight and give thanks. Thank God for His grace. Let's pray. Father, why would You love us so? Before we loved You, You loved us. Before we found You, You found us. And before we sought You, You sought us. Before we cared for You, You cared for us. Thankful for our salvation, Father. We are thankful for the reminder. It seems so obvious, everything that's been said tonight, really, that, that we should be thankful because of the mercy that's been shown to us. But how easy is it for us to forget the great mercy you've shown to us despite our sin. We minimize our sin often and don't think that it's that bad or maybe that it was that, that hard for you to save us. But Lord, when we look in your word, we may not be a, a Saul, a murderous Saul. We may not be a serial murderer or even a Amazon package thief. But we all have sins that we've committed against you, the holy God, and all of them are worthy of death. All of them are worthy of an eternal death in hell. All of them are worthy of separation from you, and all of us at one time were spiritually dead. And we needed life breathed into us. We needed grace poured on us. And that's why we love our Jesus fair. He was pierced by thorns. Thorns that we created with our sin. And he did that so that we could have life. We praise you that he's coming again and that we have promise of a future resurrection. We don't have to continue to fight against sin in the next life because that sin will be removed. It's like we read earlier that there will be no Canaanite in the land and in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no one who will be in opposition to us or you. Only those who love you will be there. There will be no sin no sickness or sorrow, any of the curses that come from our sin will all be gone as well. Lord, give us focus tonight. Repurpose us for your work. Help us to, to be freshly reminded of your great mercy on us and live in light of that. I pray in Jesus' name.